The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gayet, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Is joining us for the hour here, Rick Palacios, uh, director of research, uh, John Burns, uh, real estate consulting, uh, and I think this is going to be a very timely conversation because I think it's becoming more and more clear that housing uh, is probably in trouble, but it's always a question of by how much. So, Rick, for those who are not familiar with uh, who you are, talk about your background, how you get involved in in markets, in real estate, and what it is that you're exactly doing right now. Yeah. I, so for the bulk of my professional career, I've, I've been an analyst focused on the residential real estate space. Um, came into it around 05, 06, which was an opportune time. Even interned at Countrywide Financial, for those that remember, back in the heydays of subprime uh, when I was in college. So learned some lessons there, uh, processing loans for sure. And in terms of just overall background, I've, I've worked with the firm here and now from entry-level analyst to now our head of research um, about 11 years or so. And in between, uh, worked at the Milken Institute, which is a think tank here in Southern California. Uh, and I was focused on the housing mortgage industry right in 2009 after I came out of grad school. So it was a fantastic time to be in grad school and a fantastic time to be focused on the housing industry as well, given the GFC. Uh, and then also had a brief stint at Morgan Stanley doing uh, sell-side research on home builders. And for those not intimately familiar with just the firm as a whole, <clears throat> we've been around 20 years. And um, it's it's our job to, to really figure out what's going on at the local markets across the country as it relates to housing. And our client base pays us to figure out exactly what's happening, what our short-term view is, medium term and then long term we forecast all the way out to 2025 believe it or not and i i think you know my my favorite part of the job is we we learn so much from our clients because it's it's everyone on the industry side from land developers home builders clearly building product uh, manufacturers distributors rental operators both single family rental and then now build for rent apartment developers everybody that's lending into the space. So we learn just a ton in interacting with our clients and we publish a ton of research for all anybody that follows me on Twitter. You see kind of the little tidbits and breadcrumbs of what we do. And I'll, I'll stop there, Michael, because I'm sure people want to hear exactly what's going on in the market right now. Yeah, no, no, that, that's, that, that's, that's great uh, uh, backdrop. Okay. So, so the, the thing that's obviously in the media quite a bit now is 
the focus on how mortgage rates have utterly spiked as yields have spiked, obviously, especially with the way treasuries have behaved on the longer duration side. Um, and it, it, it seems to me that uh, there's this belief that housing is going to decelerate, but not necessarily uh, reverse in terms of value. Uh, I want you to talk about historically, how have these types of mortgage rate shocks uh, ended up impacting housing, the the uh, momentum that's behind purchases, and what's the typical lag in terms of when you actually see that with uh, prices? Yeah, so everybody hones in on prices, and specifically on the resale side, it's actually the last place that you see uh, the, the slowdown show up. One of the first places that you see it show up, which is which is it's so great that we're so close to the home building space, um, it's real time what's going on with home builders. And we've been surveying uh, home builders across the country for the last 14 years. We do it every month during the spring selling season. We actually do it uh, a mid-month channel check as well. And we started seeing signals of that happening all the way back to probably February or March when rates started creeping up. And just in the last couple of weeks, which is when rates have now touched 6% plus, um, it's pretty clear. I mean, builder sales offices are going to be fairly quiet is, is my, uh, my guess <laughs> as we go into the weekend. And I mean, this, this isn't just, you know, us just kind of throwing statements out there. I mean, we just surveyed about a hundred or so home builders, through the first two weeks of June. And back in February, almost 100% of home builders were raising prices on a month-over-month basis. And that has collapsed. And the commentary we picked up in the first weeks of June is that almost no builders are raising prices right now on a month-over-month basis. And traffic in their communities has slowed massively. Traffic to their websites has slowed Massively, and you're starting to see more and more incentives thrown at the buyer to try to nudge them into purchasing a home, whether it be buying down the rate on their loan, uh, giving them some 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 money to go and spend in the design center, and then where you're actually where you're seeing actual price cuts right now. I mean, it's happening real time with home builders is where they have stand. Inventory. So this is something that that the industry refers to as spec or speculative inventory, where you start a home without having a buyer in place, and that that was the 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 model really the last probably year or so where builders were trying to kind of get out in front of costs and didn't want to price a home until they were later in the construction stage because crop costs were ripping higher. Their home prices are ripping higher. They wanted to capture some of that margin. That works really well when times are fantastic. And then as soon as the market shifts, and if it shifts on a dime, the story works the exact opposite way. And so you do not want to be sitting on standing inventory when the market changes on a dime. And that's now what's happening. And so where builders do have standing inventory, especially if it's if it's catered towards the entry-level buyer, which is extremely sensitive to the more mortgage payment shock that we've now seen with 6% rates, that's where builders are cutting prices already. And it's, it's not massive. Um, right now we're seeing 10%, sometimes 15%. Uh, again, it's not universal across the country, but it's, uh, it's definitely... Been that, um, yeah, yeah, sorry, you were breaking up a little bit, but I don't know, maybe if you can be a little closer to whatever internet you might be on or if it's the 
cell phone. But okay, but but let's let's go with this this point about the spec bill because I think this is interesting. This idea of of kind of buying without having a, a, a you know and buyer in place or building when you don't have a buyer in place. When did that really uh, accelerate? Because you know, obviously we know COVID changed a lot of these dynamics, but where did that really start to kind of get to be a uh, almost like a, a a mania among the home builders? So I was asking the question, just to repeat the question, uh, this this point about the spec build is is interesting. When did that really start to go vertical? When was there when when, when did the mania kind of really start to maybe kick in among these home builders that wanted to build out these these homes, just hoping that they would be a buyer when they're done with it? Yeah, I think it really started to surge probably in early 2021, um, because that's really when it, it, I mean it, it was just ridiculous coming out as soon as as soon as we got into really. May of 2020, it was off to the races for the entire housing industry, and they were just trying to build as many homes as they as they could, and as fast as they could. Um, and what a lot of builders started pivoting to in 2021 was exactly what I was mentioning, just on trying to do more speculative inventory. And, and the reason there was just because they did not want to price homes early in the process because it was very hard to get visibility around what was going to happen on the cost side, and so they wanted to wait a little bit. A lot of times before they got to when they got to drywall because they had a lot of visibility on the cost side there and home prices were ripping up so high during that time period that they could capture the cost side of it, push it onto the consumer and capture a lot of the margin upside in home prices. Um, so that that was really a big part of of builders' plans all throughout 2021 and even into early 22. And then it started to flip over as soon as the writing was on the wall with what was happening with rates and then clearly now with what's going on in the economy. And I think now it's pretty much consensus that we are going to be going into a recession um, in 2023. How does that compare to the lead up to the the peak in housing? I think it was in 06, right? When you had cranes everywhere, you looked in Vegas and, and in other areas, right? Now that's obviously not on the home building side, but it's all partially related, right? So how, how does that spec uh, inventory build compare to, to prior cycles? Oh, it's 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 nowhere near which is which is good. That's a really that's a really good thing, and that's where you know that there's a lot of of kind of extreme bearishness and oh we're going into a crash and you know our our view is that that is that is not in our base case. Although there is going to be a slowdown, we are expecting prices to decline and construction volumes to fall. Um, but but the good thing is that if you look on the lending side, um, we have not been doing crazy wild loans over the last five, six years during this time period. Um, and the industry as itself it, it did not get out over its skis. And there's a variety of ways that you can, that you can look at that and cut the data. Um, but, you know, builders did not this cycle go out into the CDF submarkets where it's a drive till you qualify for the loan type of, of um, housing market. And, that should help the industry weather this slowdown better than it did clearly in in the GFC. And the other thing too is if you if you look at just the the balance sheets of of public builders across the industry, uh, the lion's share are are they're pristine. They they've never looked so good. So I think the the ability for them to to weather this slowdown is much better than what we saw during the GFC. And it, and it kind of brings me to a point that we've been communicating to our clients for the past two or three months. 
And and now you're seeing the Fed essentially do this where you know, I, I think that the, the Fed is is using housing as as kind of the sacrificial lamb right now to just slow everything down. And it's one of the only levers that they can actually push and pull to have an immediate impact on on inflation. And and we're all seeing that right now. I mean, as soon as they started to move both on the short end, which you know doesn't really necessarily impact 10-year rates. I know you mentioned that earlier, but what they're starting to do flipping from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, I mean, that's having an immediate impact on what's going on with long-term rates and obviously mortgage rates. Um, and so I think when the Fed kind of looked around and said, hey, what industries out there can we try to slow down and not just have a massive impact on the broader economy? Uh, housing, housing is actually one of those industries because the industry as a whole just did not get out over its skis way over leverage like it did during the GFC. And, you know, unless this, unless this ripples out into a banking type of crisis, financial markets type of crisis, because then everything just gets gummed up and recessions um, turn into quasi depressions. And so that's not in our forecast, but um, you know, unless that happens, housing should be able to get through this um, without a massive amount of pain. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion. Now, and you bring up a good point with that. I, I, I keep referencing that, you know, whenever the Fed talks about the wealth effect, they're really not talking about stocks. Right? They really are talking about housing because the vast majority of people's assets uh, are in their homes. It's not necessarily through you know, a particular ETF, right? So mm-hmm. it makes sense that that's the transmission mechanism. Now, I want to get a little bit in the weeds here because it's it's kind of, you know, just knowing the details, um, I think are interesting. So home builders, they obviously have to buy a bunch of lumber, they have to buy a bunch of commodities, buy a bunch of things to actually build the home. Um, it, it, would home builders simply, um, rather than stopping the build, just say to themselves, well, uh, if commodity prices are high, I'll start. Uh, I'm willing to accept a smaller margin, meaning they eat some of that that commodity cost. Because I have to assume that that's that's a way that you can kind of keep the party going. Uh, just not going to be as as exciting. Yeah. So you you hit it on the head. Um, what what we anticipate happening right now, and again, it goes back to my comments about just kind of the broader industry. Uh, home builders are reporting the highest gross margins they've ever reported in the entire history of housing. So you know, just kind of take a moment and like wrap your head around that for all of the noise and volatility and issues with supply chain, they're cranking out the highest margins they've ever had. I mean, there's mar- there's a lot of builders reporting close to 30% gross margins. Um, and so, well, and, and what, and what's the driver of that? And what is that, is that really just a function of the demand is so much more that they can, they can get a bare price. What's, what's the driver of that margin? Oh, it's, it's, um, it was 3% mortgage rates, um, even 4% and just, the work from home source. I mean, everything that's been written about over the past couple of years and just 
buyers willing to go out because they could get a cheap loan and there wasn't much supply out there, especially on the resale side too, and saying, hey, I will pay whatever it takes to get this house. Um, and so builders were able to push, pi- pr- push price, push price uh, for the last couple of years. And that all manifested in crazy high gross margins. And so it's, it's, now, it's, it's almost counterintuitive, whereas now, because builders are sitting, especially on some of these homes, and it brings me back to the comment on standing speculative inventory that they've got, because those homes are, they've, they've got embedded gross margins at close to all-time highs, it, it probably is going to make it so that builders are more inclined to drop prices faster because they're going from, say, a 30% gross margin all-time high to, okay, now I'm going to cut prices maybe 10%. Um, I already know what my cost of goods sold were on the were on these homes because they're done. Uh, and so, yeah, so maybe margin goes to 22 to 25%. Um, and there's, there's obviously some range in there, but a 22 to 25% gross margin is actually uh, a normalized, slightly above normalized gross margin for a home builder. And so that's where I do think you are going to see builders willing to flex down on price for some of the standing inventory that they've got because they're dropping from a super high margin to a relatively healthy margin. Now, that story doesn't last forever um, because you don't have a ton of homes that are sitting on all-time hard margins right now. But it is an interesting thing to think about. And then the other thing too, I think, is there's a little bit of a first-mover advantage here where if you if you look at the census numbers on construction under development and starts, and I know that number just came out um, this week, the pick in the Python, there's a lot of supply coming. So there's a supply wave that we all see. We all know it's coming. It's probably going to hit some of it towards the end of 2022 into 2023. And so I think what builders realize is, look, let me get the first mover advantage here. Let me cut prices on this stuff. And I don't want to have to be doing this when this wave of supply starts to percolate as we get into 2023. Um, so I do think that that is part of what is happening. And the game plan from what we see in terms of how this shakes out is you're going to get a combo of, of flexing down on standing inventory prices. And then you're going to get also that coupled with if builders have loaded up on land, and a lot of them have over the last couple of years, they can kind of sit tight, right out this air pocket that hopefully doesn't last all that long and just moderate the pace of starts they can pull back on land buying and they can also pull back on permits that they're pulling. And and that's a very smart thing to do and just conserve cash to see how long this slowdown lasts. Before I bring up uh, Joe and and Daraj here for some questions from the audience, I I, want to hear your take on this, this line that there's this, this uh, housing shortage, right? Which, and you kind of alluded to it, there's, there's not a ton of homes out there. I've always thought it to be a little bit of a strange concept in the sense that the estimates I've seen are that there's something like 3 million homes that are short, but against that backdrop, you've got something like 10 million uh, second homes, right? Homes that are not primary residences. Vacancy. Yep. yep. Right. Right. Which, which, which is, I saw, some, I saw some tweet about if you looked at uh, uh, Louisiana, you look at uh, New Orleans, you, the number of Airbnbs, it's like almost the entire uh, city of New Orleans, right? It's not people actually <laughs> living there, right? So, so, but I want you to talk about that because this this narrative has been has been out there that that's one of the reasons housing is going to keep on 
advancing. But if that's really driven by a misallocation of capital, which is causing uh, people to get very wealthy to end up having them diversify their wealth in second homes, then I would myself would argue that's kind of a false narrative. But, but what's your take on that? This is the good thing about us having um, a chief demographer in-house. Um, and so our number is nowhere near the three to, I think you've even seen numbers close to 5 million that, that say we're undersupplied uh, or a shortage. Um, the number that we have right now is around 1.6, 1.7 million units. And and so it, it, it doesn't tie to the, the numbers, I think, that get covered a lot in in the press um and a lot and of how, that, and how does that compare to the past how does, how does it compare to like prior or cycles those, those well, numbers um you know that's a good that's a good question i don't know that number off the top of my head but what but what i was gonna say was a lot of the number and the math that you ultimately come up with on that undersupply um uh figure it really depends on your starting point in time for when you start running the analysis and so like if you if you only look at 2010 to current, your number's going to be massively higher than ours. Um, because technically, yeah, there hasn't been that much building right now. But our number actually goes back and looks at, okay, well, how much did we actually oversupply the market during the run-up in the subprime crazy days? And everyone knows we massively oversupplied the market. So you have to think about that. And then you have to factor in, okay, 2010 to current, Okay, now we're we're adjusting off of that, and we have to make up for all that oversupply, and so that's where our number is significantly um, less, I guess, inflammatory than some of the numbers that you see out there. Yeah, it's it's a good question, and one of the things that I love doing is going through and just reading all the comments from our home builder survey, talking to all of our clients, and this is the first month and and I'm I'm speaking just on the last couple of weeks here in June where I have seen commentary about costs starting to flatten out costs actually the rate of increase is starting to fall off um and that's that's not just lumber I think everybody knows that's been happening with lumber which is going to take a while there's a lag there before that rolls through for a builder but I do think that we are starting to see the the input costs for home builders um, start to moderate and, and even come down, which is is going to be a nice relief for for home builders for sure. Yeah, you know, I I don't have an exact figure, and I know it's it's different for every product segment. But if if home builders are telling us that they're feeling and seeing it already, and then then I expect it to be happening pretty soon here for a lot of the different input costs. I mean, if there's if there's massive demand destruction across the entire housing industry, it's very hard for a supplier to go to a home builder and say, hey, we're continuing to jack prices here. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, so I, I think you're asking how how negative our, is our outlook. Um, and to to kind of sum, sum up our, our view, I mean, we, we are anticipating construction volume declines over the next couple of years. We are anticipating uh, price declines, and I think that's probably a non-consensus view. Um, particularly on the new home side, because builders will adjust prices fast. In a lot of ways, um, they're not forced sellers, but they will they will meet the market on price and move on. Whereas on the resale side, a lot of people will decide to just you know I'm not going to sell my home, um, so you won't have as many forced sellers. 
Yeah, so I mean, we are forecasting mid-single-digit price declines at a national level, and we do this at a market level across the country. And there's a lot of markets that I think we all are familiar with that have just been going ballistic over the last couple of years. I mean, think about the Boise's and Austin's and Phoenix's of the world, Nashville, where we're, we are forecasting more significant price declines. And I think what was in that question, too, was just kind of broader views on is what is what's happening in the economy impacting what is happening in the housing market. And I do agree that I, I think when someone thinks about purchasing a home, it's one of the most important financial decisions they're ever going to make in their lifetime. And they do not make that decision in a vacuum. And so when things start to wiggle across the economy, when the inflation psychology of the consumer starts to ratchet up, and obviously we're there right now, they start really scrutinizing these decisions. And I mean, go back to basics on affordability. When we started the year at 3% mortgage rates roughly, and now we're at 6% roughly, that is a massive impact to your purchasing power. I mean, our math tells us it shaves off roughly a third of what you could afford in terms of the mortgage that you could take on to keep that payment the same. So I think all of those things work in unison together and do have an impact on on the buyer psyche. And we're seeing that clearly in June right now. Before I uh, bring, bring in Mark here, I, I do want to relate that a little bit to this other counter argument I've heard, which is that you're not going to see kind of a, a broad-based massive decline in housing because you do have uh, these institutional buyers that will never necessarily have to be uh, for sellers, right? And, and you know, talk about the, the kind of Black Rocks of the world. You see these stories about how they're buying up, in some cases, whole neighborhoods. Uh, you know, and obviously the related homes there. Um, how does how does the the this kind of institutionalization of <laughs> of of uh, buying homes? How has that uh, as been a tr- as a trend over the last several years? And how does that maybe impact uh, pricing uh, going forward? You think? Yeah. So. I wouldn't put BlackRock in that camp, um, but there we did a white paper on investor activity back in March 2021, which seems like a decade ago, and the title of it was Investor Mania 2.0. And we looked at all the different segments of that you could throw in this investor bucket, um, single-family rental, cash buyers, foreign buyers, fix-and-flip, short-term rental. Um, and our view was that Look, when the market's great and interest rates are crazy low and the economy's on fire, this is just, it's steroids. And it fed into our very bullish view, namely on home prices back then. And at the same time, when we wrote that white paper, it was, it was look, this, the way to think about this is hot money. When things are great, it's here. When things flip and they're not great, it moves on. And that's what we're starting to see in some of the commentary already from, um, builders that have been selling to investors it's that even even those investors are starting to pull back and the the big institutions get a ton of attention in this obviously but it's really the small mom and pop landlords fix and flip investors i mean spend some time on social media and you can just see all the posts about this especially when things were good and people were making a ton of money that is now reversing pretty quickly and the the percentage of of housing transactions going to investors across the country i mean some of these percentages are pretty pretty eye opening you go to a market like phoenix las vegas 
30 to 40% of all housing transactions are going to investors. And so as we start to see rates explode here and the possibility of going to recession, because if you were thinking of putting a, a renter in that home, well, now you might not be able to get the rent that you anticipated because the economy is starting to wiggle. So all of these things are starting to have a, a reversal impact now. Um, and, it, and it feeds into our, our you know, somewhat negative view where if I'm going through and doing forecasts for housing transactions at the, at the market level, for home prices at the market level, and I know 40% of transactions in 2021 and then in the first quarter of 2022, we're going to investors. I mean, you better believe I'm going to haircut what I think is going to happen in that market because of what I know is happening with investors right now. Yeah, I think what you're hitting on is uh, we call it the lock-in effect. It, it actually it feeds into our view. I mean, we cover the for sale market, for rent, but also do a ton of work in building products, repairing our model. And it, fe- it feeds into our more optimistic view on repairing our model activity, which is you know good for companies like Home Depot and Lowe's because, um, yeah, people are going to be very very reluctant to give up that three or even sub three mortgage rate. And, and the, the only thing that, 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 that kind of throws a wrench into that thesis is if there's um, more significant pain in the economy than what we, you know, we are anticipating, even though we are in recession, it's not an asset recession. Um, so I guess we've got more conviction that this turned into some sort of a banking structure, credit markets type of recession. Um, job losses accelerating, then, then you get people that lose their job and they got to they give up that rate and sell that home to move on. Um, but that is not in our forecast right now. So I do think there is some some merit to that, that statement on the lock-in effect should, in theory, keep some inventory from coming onto the market as long as we don't get uh, a significant recession here and people end up losing their jobs. No, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Um, our... Our firms, I mean, we have a fantastic team that, you know, it's my job just to kind of still this information to people. Um, then we don't have a shadow number, but I think when we look at some of the data that Black Knight provides, um, you know, the, the amount of, of foreclosures that are kind of in the system or that could come into the system based off of what we know right now are not all that high. And I think that does speak to some of my, my comments earlier on, the credit underwriting um, through most of this cycle, but what I what I will say that is is somewhat unnerving uh, for us when we look at the the underwriting quality. Particularly, you have to look at it by product type. And when we get under the hood and look at the uh, the credit quality of FHA loans, so these are these are loans that are going to primarily entry level buyers with not pristine credit scores. There are a large percentage of those loans going to borrowers that have debt to income ratios back end, so it's all of your 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 borrowing costs um, that are that are significantly elevated. I mean, you're talking 40, 45 percent plus debt to income ratios, six fifty and less FICO scores. Um, so that that does give us some worry because if the economy cools off here and people start losing their jobs and home prices collapse. Um, or even decline 10, 15 percent. Uh, those those homes, if you bought in the last probably six to twelve months, in some of the markets that are starting to correct here, um, those homes could be underwater. Um, and so, you know, it's just something to think about. And every market's different, but you know, looking at the credit quality by product type is something that we 
been spending more time doing lately. You know, I, I will say hey, just, just on credit scores, um, I think you could, you could make a case, you, you could make a case that there's been somewhat of an artificial melt up in credit scores across the board coming out of the GFC. And then also during COVID when just a lot of, a lot of things that would have dinged a consumer's credit were just. By the way, if, uh, if you are wondering why I have lumber and gold eyes, it's exactly because of housing and home builders, uh, because it relates to what's the big driver of the economy, obviously. So give me a second here. I'll hopefully I'll get uh, Rick back up. There we go. No, so I think um, I'm not sure how much you heard of the comments on just credit quality, but I think you could make a case that if you just look at overall FICO scores, there has been somewhat of a melt up in FICO scores coming out of the, the COVID recession. Um, because a lot of just things that would have dinged people's credit were just put on hold. And so that's, that's a big part of why when we look at, especially mortgage credit quality, we like to look at each buyer segment, each product type, um, an entry level has been a big driver of housing over the last couple of years. And that's where it's important to just look in and say, okay, well, who's driving that? What type of loans? And on the FHA side, we have seen some elevated debt to income ratios. We have seen some deterioration in FICO scores which are things that we think are important to pay attention to. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Let me uh, get a question here that was DM'd to me real quick from Volatility and Coffee, which <laughs> seems like a seems like a very dangerous combination. But uh, the question he asked was curious if Risk uh, has opinions about the relationships uh, in terms of rents, uh, especially in large cities like New York City. Sort of the impact of uh, how rent rents impact some of your um, some of your forecasts around housing and and you know sort of distinctions between cities versus non cities. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you one of the, the most important areas that we're thinking about rents right now is how it feeds in to CPI. Because I think that probably the most important stat right now when you look across the economy is what do people expect is going to happen with CPI. And roughly a third of that is shelter. And a big part of that is owner's equivalent rent, which is a wonky stat, but it's basically what people think they could rent their house out for. And we do a ton of work in the rental space. And I mean, all signs are that rent growth is just continuing to accelerate on a year over year. It's, 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 it's up massively on a year over year. Um, we are starting to see signs of the rate of change decelerate. But I mean, you're decelerating from, in some markets on new leases, namely on the single family rental side, from, gosh, 20% on new leases to maybe 15, 16. Um, so, you know, Looking at the rental data that we track and knowing what it means for owner's equivalent rent and CPI, um, it's very hard to imagine rents all of a sudden collapsing, slowing down massively, which does feed into our view on on broader inflation. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try and hit that in a variety of ways. Uh, one, we, we track the relationship between cost of owning a home and cost of, of renting that same home. Um, 
And the spread on that is now the highest that we, I believe, have ever seen. Um, which, which, and a lot of that is just due to what's happening with mortgage rates right now. And so that is immediately going to feed into an increasing amount of households that thought they were going to purchase a home are now going to be renting a home. And it's one of the reasons that the single family rental industry has actually historically weathered, um, especially recessions, better uh, than the for sale industry and then obviously apartments as well, which can tend to get oversupplied. Um, if you think back to, I mean, the, drilling in a little bit on the single family rental industry, if you think back to the great financial crisis, uh, worst recession since the Great Depression, yet in markets like Phoenix, where, I mean, just the epicenter for a collapse in the economy, in housing, the rental data that we track in single family rentals shows that rents only fell peak to trough. I believe it's about four to five percent. And a big part of that was because if you if you were in a home and owned the home and you had to foreclose, you're not going backwards lifestyle-wise. You may have a family, you want to be close to a school, so you're not going to go reverse back to apartments. You're going to look for something that's similar, and that's that's historically and traditionally a, a single-family rental home. So it's one of the reasons that that sector is weathering things better. I think something to watch out for, though, is... When you when you do have a recession and people are losing their jobs, uh, you can't assume that you're going to be able to raise rents ten percent plus in perpetuity, um, just because the, the the tenant, the consumer, is not going to be able to do that any longer. And so, rent growth, in our view, especially if the economy starts to decelerate significantly here, rent growth is going to have to come in. But historically, it's very rare, especially at a national scale, that single family rents actually drop. And, and actually move into negative territory. The other thing that I, that I think is interesting too on this um, on, on the renter space is you know we, we've got kind of a working thesis that there was a decoupling or explosion in household formations coming out of COVID where you had two, three people living together and then obviously work from home, fear of COVID, moving out, separating on their own, but also because rents came down a lot of these gateway markets, and now rents have accelerated and blown out, and a lot of these people cannot afford it anymore. And so we do think, especially if there's a recession, that you'll see a reverse of that and people doubling up to save money. I'm curious, Rick. Um, I, I I I gather you're obviously much more focused on the U.S. market, but I don't know if you've done any work on the international side and and what kind of exposure do some of the home builder stocks in the in the uh, the companies in the U.S. have to to building outside of our borders because you know this this housing boom is not just focused on the US right it's it's globally because obviously covid was was a global phenomenon yeah so we have our hands full trying to figure out what's going on in the US housing market um i wish we had more time to spend on the international side but it, you know it's it's not something that i would would want to chime in on although i will echo what you said i mean it has been just a global boom in every developed housing market over the last two, three years. Uh, and now we're seeing, you know, just as everything kind of moved up in unison, now as, you know, every central bank is raising rates, uh, not only US, but across the world, that theme is starting to reverse for sure. And, you know, one of the things that, that benefits the US market is that we've got 30-year fixed rate mortgages. That is not the case in a lot of parts of the country. And so when rates start to reset, it has a, an even sharper impact on housing. Yeah, I know that that's that's very valid in terms of um, in terms of that that dynamic. Um, okay, you know, I always get these these uh, random 
questions from um, individuals asking me because I've, I've been kind of on this drumbeat that housing is going to decelerate and slow down for several months here. Asking the question of, uh, well, you know, should I wait to buy my home or, you know, should I just do it? My response is always, you know, don't view it necessarily as an investment, view it as something different because you're going to live there and memories and, you know, everything you kind of go through living in a home, you can't really put a price on. But if you were to put some sort of timeline around sort of where you think these trends might uh, not just uh, uh, turn, but bottom out, right, in terms of just the deceleration and when that might end. When do you think would be sort of an interesting uh, period to consider uh, looking more at at houses from an investment perspective? H- how much time is needed for this to kind of flush out a bit? Yeah, so I, I will answer that um, not on the investment side, um, but more on the and I think it echoes your your points exactly, Michael. I mean, there's no matter where we are in the cycle, the worst of times, the best of times. Um, I think even in the great financial crisis, there was like 4 million plus resale transactions. Like there, there's always reasons for people to move. You're relocating, you got married, you're downsizing, whatever it is. Um, and so, yeah, if, if you find your dream home and that's where you want to be for the long haul, um, you, you shouldn't be thinking in one, two year increments. Um, and if rates, cut, if rates come down uh, in the next few years, you know, you can just refi down all the way through. Um, so that, you know, that, that's kind of the way that, that I like to think about it. Um, I know a lot of people, especially on the investment side, don't think about it that way, but I, I think Michael, that's probably the best way to approach it. And if you, and if you just use our lens in terms of our, our forecasts, um, you know, our, our view is affordability is probably the, the most important metric to look at for, for housing and affordability has to normalize down. Uh, trees don't grow the sky. We can't continue at the rate we've been at over the last couple of years. And so for that to happen um, with rates where they are, you have to have home prices cooling off. And so we do anticipate that happening over the next couple of years. We do anticipate a recession happening over the next year or so, uh, and then starting to recover in our outer year forecasts as well as home prices. And so um, you know, if, if you want to just kind of ride it out and you can for the next year or two, um, you, know, you, can also, you can also choose that path as well. How do uh, uh, people rate, get access to some of the research that you put out if they're really curious beyond just following you here on Twitter? What, what do you recommend? Yeah, I mean, you can you can message me um, and we'll put you in, in touch with the right people. We, I mean, we publish a ton of research reports every single month. Uh, we just did our monthly macro housing econ piece. Uh, it's a quick client email that's about 400 or 500 words, but there's about 400 slides that feed into that uh, client email. So, I mean, we are definitely doing a lot of homework on our end. So if anybody's interested, you know, by all means, reach out. You're doing a lot of homework while uh, homework is probably going to slow down, which is a really bad pun. But uh, everybody, that's, uh, <laughs> but everybody, everybody that's here, again, please make sure you follow uh, Rick Palacios. Rick, first time you and I speak, I think this was a, a phenomenal conversation, one that is important for people to just keep in the back of their minds because the reality is as much as we get nervous about equity volatility, housing volatility is far more impactful. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Michael. And I apologize for the audio. Next time I'll get it right. All good. Thank you, everybody, for joining. And hopefully I'll see uh, many of you in about uh, six minutes. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own.
A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.